Second Peter uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses, although we're only going to look at the first few verses of this chapter. Um, we're at the end of this series. As I said, God is real. That changes everything. And we're zeroing in now on the reality of the change that that implies for our lives as children of God. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who it would seem are struggling. Uh, they're struggling with their ability to live for God in the communities in which they find themselves. And uh, they're struggling because there's some among them, and Peter calls them false teachers, people among them in their company that are speaking things about God that are not true. And it's having an impact on them. It's diverting their attention from the things that are true. But they're also living in a world and communities which people outside who hear of their Christian faith mock them and make fun of them and say, you really believe that stuff? And so they're struggling to, to find their way and to uh, find out how to live the life that God has called them to, to live lives of godliness, and they're not having an easy time of it. And so there's a question that I sort of want to um, wrestle with as we work our way just through the first few verses of this chapter. And it's this, is, is the power of Christ there's power in the name, is the power of Christ sufficient on its own to strengthen the resolve of anxious and tempted Christians in a tough and attractively pagan world? In other words, is Christ enough? Is he all that you need to face the difficulties that you're going to face in life? It's fascinating to me that as Peter begins to tackle this, the reality that they're facing, that as he begins to take on the problems that these uh, individuals are facing, he doesn't first deal with the problem, but he focuses on God's provision for them. This is, this is what God has done for you. Now go take on the day kind of thing. And it's fascinating that as we look at Scripture and we look at the Christian life, that, and Peter will tell us this, we're not supposed to look inward or around us for help. Rather, we're to look outward and upward for help. We're not to look to human resources for, for the help that we need for life and godliness. Rather, we're to find all of those resources are provided for us through Christ Jesus. And so Peter launches into these truths that these Christians so desperately needed to hear. Gospel truths about Jesus and his power and his promises. 
and his work on our behalf and through them how he has provided for us everything that we need for life and godliness. If you're following, we use the ESV Bible as a public reading Bible and um, it says in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things. Most other translations, and it's, it's just the, the English that they've you try to use for it. It says the same thing, but most other ones says he is, his divine power is granted to us everything. And I like that word better, everything. But somebody might sit back and say, well, that's just hyperbole. He's just overstating his case because he, he wants to drive people to, to at least focus on Christ and, and try and make him a, a priority. Or some might say, well, that's a bit of exaggeration. Because, come on, really? Is, is, does everything that we need for life and godliness, does that come to us through Christ? But no, what Peter wants us to understand is that, no, everything, everything that we need for life and for godliness comes to us through the power of Christ and through the promises of Christ. Everything that you need to work on your marriage, everything that you need to survive in high school, everything that you need to make it through college, everything that you need, you, you need to uh, survive in a world of mixed up relationships, everything that you need to, to respond appropriately to your parents, everything that you as parents need to raise your children properly, everything that we need for life and for godliness has been granted to us through Christ Jesus. See, Peter... I, I am so thankful for what he does. These, these first four verses are one of the most succinct pres presentations of the gospel you will find anywhere in the scriptures. And, and we've, I, I think, unfortunately, we, 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 we've lost sight of the full scope of the gospel. It's not the gospel of men and women. It's the gospel of God. And the gospel is the proclamation of God about the grace of God, which transforms our life. It not only saves us from darkness and from sin and into, ushers us into a new way of living, but it also transforms us. And I think as the people of God, we have lost sight of the transforming power of the gospel. We focus so much on the saving power of gospel, but not so much on the transforming power of gospel. And Peter wants us to understand this. See, he's worried about the transformation in these people's lives. But, you know, he doesn't start with what we have to do. I am so thankful for that. He doesn't start with a list of, okay, you, you need to pray three times a day. You need to read your Bible. Uh, you need to abstain from this. You need to not go there. You need to do this. And as Christians and as churches, we are really good at laying on the do's. We are really good at, 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 at laying out a, a plate of legalism and saying to one another, well, this is what you have to do. Peter doesn't start there. Peter starts with what God has done for us. And I frankly find that such a relief and such a help in my Christian life because that is the gospel. That not only are we saved by the grace of God, but we continue by the grace of God. And we make it to the end by the grace of God. As Amazing Grace says, you know how, how uh, Amazing Grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. It's not that we start with grace and then we finish with works. 
And that's what happens in the church, and that's what Paul addresses in Galatians. He says, what happened? You started out so well. You started out trusting in the grace of God with, with such fervor. And now you've taken on that responsibility for yourself, and you've distorted the gospel. And so the gospel is not just about how we start. The gospel is about how we continue. And he begins in verse 1, and I just need to drop a, a couple things into our hearts and minds so we, we, we at least are, are thinking rightly, generally about the gospel. He says, to those who have obtained a faith, a faith, a, a, a conviction, a saving work of Jesus, of equal standing with ours, how do we attain that faith? He says, by the righteousness or through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You understand what he's saying there? Every single one of us here today who is a child of God is a child of God in exactly the same way. Through the work of Jesus Christ. There's not a single one of us here that has, gets in any other way. You can't buy your way in. You can't work your way in. You can't inherit your way in. You can't get in on the shirt tails of your mom and dad or your grandpa and grandma. You get in, you're saved by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our faith. And so that's what Peter wants these Christians to understand first and foremost as they're, as they're reflecting on what he's going to say to them a little bit more. He wants them to understand the playing field is level and you're saved by grace and grace alone through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the environment of faith, if we can put it that way. Grace and peace and the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. You see, in the ocean, Everything in the ocean, its environment is salt water. You take a, a fish or a whale or, or any of the sea creatures out of the ocean and stick it on land, and it's only a matter of time before it dies. It's out of its environment that God created for it to exist and thrive in. And if you take any one of us or any one of our pets or any one of the animals that's in this world and you take them out of the environment of air and you put them in a room and you suck all the oxygen out of the room, you're going to die. Because the environment in which we thrive in is an environment of oxygen. Well, the environment of faith is not works. The environment of faith is grace and peace that's multiplied to us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, Paul explains it this way. Since then, he says, since then we have been justified by faith, faith in Christ and his work for us, his righteousness, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you feel at odds with God and you're, you think God is angry, the way to reconcile with God is not by your good works. It's not by your effort. It's through Jesus Christ. Through Christ we have peace with God. And through him we have also obtained access by faith to this grace in which we stand. We, 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 we stand in grace. We stand in the work of Christ. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor to us. Peace describes the status of our relationship with God. 
I, I can't tell you what it is like, unless you yourself have experienced it, what it is to be at peace with God. It's amazing. When you come to realize what we should be in relationship with God, to realize that we're at peace with God is profound. And he says, May then grace and peace overthrow, overflow through a knowledge of Christ. I want us to understand something of this reality. That our start of salvation is Christ. And a knowledge of Christ. There's a basic knowledge of Christ that, that brings you into a relationship with God. But that relationship um, uh, with Christ doesn't end there. It's the relationship of Christ and the knowledge of Christ that is our pursuit throughout the rest of our Christian life here on earth. At the end of Peter, he says, um, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just a, just a quick, what are you doing to grow in your understanding of the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? See, I think sometimes we stop at salvation. And, and we think, well, I know enough now. It's not enough. There is so much more. And it's through a knowledge of, uh, of Christ, his person, his work, that peace and grace are multiplied to us. And it's through a knowledge of Christ that his divine power helps us. It's through a knowledge of Christ that we get a sense of the magnificence of his promises. And so our Christian faith is maintained through a pursuit of salvation. But it's also a passion. For Paul says, I desire nothing else. Everything that I've learned, everything I know, I count but loss for the surpassing glory or the surpassing privilege of knowing Christ. Paul, who wrote a third of our New Testament, didn't know Christ well enough. He, he, he wanted to know him more. Do you know your husband well enough? Do you know your wife well enough? Do you know your best friend well enough? Is, is there... Are you just stopped in your relationship? Well, I don't need to know anything more about them. No, our, our earthly relationships are characterized by this desire to know more and more and more. Why ought not our spiritual relationship with Christ be characterized by that same desire? Think for a moment. Everything you and I need for physical life is provided by Christ. I, I, hope, I hope you understand that. We've, we've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. Um, he holds in, our, in his hand our, our very life breath. Um, Jesus is the one who has not only created you, but he maintains your body. Your heart is beating right now. Why? Because Christ has given you everything you need to keep that heart beating. Every time you breathe in a breath, you're, you're sucking in oxygen, which will go through whatever those things are in your lungs, and it will spread the oxygen to your blood, and your blood will circulate around your body, and it will keep your organs and your brain going. How does that work? Because Christ is sustaining you, because Christ is making your lungs function so that you can take in new breaths of air. Christ is keeping your kidneys functioning, your livers functioning. All of that Christ is doing. We wouldn't exist for a nanosecond if Christ didn't continue to give us everything we need for physical life. So if that's true of physical life, is it not true also of our spiritual life? There's no reason for us to look to anyone else for help in 
our spiritual life than Christ, who's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. The life, the word life that's used by Peter in verse 3 is not bios, which is often used in the New Testament, which refers to physical life. This is the word zoe, um, which means eternal life, most often in the Bible. And so what Peter is saying is everything you need to live the life that God has called you to, to, to live out the transformative work that God is doing in your life through the Holy Spirit, everything that you need for that life, and for living a godly life, a, a life that reflects God, has been given to you. It's been granted to you by the power of Jesus Christ, the divine power. And I think this is sometimes where we struggle as Christians. That, that we start out well, and, and I think more and more we, we get it, I think, I hope, that our our initial salvation is in Christ alone. We've already talked about this two or three times this morning. We get it. But something happens somewhere along the way, soon after we're, we're, we're saved, and we think, well, I've got this now. Thanks for giving me a good kickstart, God. Um, but I can do this now, and I can read this book, or I can get involved in this activity, or I can go hear this particular speaker, or I can find this particular abstract truth that nobody has found before and that I now am responsible for my life and my godliness. And Peter is saying to these Christians who are struggling before he even gives them any word of exhortation, oh, everything you need for life, the life that has been created in you through the Holy Spirit, everything you need for that life has been granted to you through divine power of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, do you really think that Christ is not enough? Do you really think that Christ is not enough to help you with that addiction? Do you really think that Christ is not enough to help you with that anger? Do you really think that Christ is not enough to help you turn around a marriage that looks hopeless? Do you really think that Christ is not enough to sustain you as you wait for a partner to come along that loves Jesus with all of their heart and soul as well? He says everything that we need for life and godliness comes through a knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I'd love to sit on all of these words. You know what it means? Um, uh, that, that word who called us by his own glory. That's a reference to the deity of Christ. When he came to earth in flesh, his glory was veiled. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory was revealed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, um, w the word was with God, and the Word was God. See, what, what, this is, what, what Peter is trying to say is, do you know that Jesus is God? That his glory is his deity, his glory is his eternal nature, his glory is his perfection and his excellence. I think that's a reference to his perfect humanity. You see, Jesus had to be both of those. He had to be God to save us eternally and to save more than one of us. But some of us might think, well, well shoot, he's God, so, you know, he doesn't know what it's like to be me. 
he doesn't know what it's like to live in the house that I live in. He doesn't know what it's like to have the thoughts that I have. He doesn't know what it's like to face the temptations that I do in the world that I live in, in the places that I have to go. Well, he does. Because what does it say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was like us in every way, tempted like we are in every way, and yet without sin. So does it not stand that he is both God and the perfect human being that he, by his power, can give us everything that we need for life and godliness? There's a song that we sing from time to time. Oh, we haven't sung it actually for a long time. And I never knew there was a second verse to it. But I found the second verse, and I, I quite like the second verse. The first verse is, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But you know what the second verse is? Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Let nobody else take his place, so that hour by hour you may prove his power till at last you have finished the race. Oh, that's the gospel. When you're facing struggles, keep your eyes upon Jesus. Hour by hour, minute by minute, keep your eyes upon Jesus till at last you have finished the race. So his divine power, because of who he is, has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Get to know Jesus. And secondly, the promises of Jesus give us everything we need for life and godliness tomorrow. Verse 4 says, By which, and he's referring to his glory and excellence, and knowledge of his person, he has granted to us, there it is again, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them, do you, you see that the promises of God are a means through which something happens? What comes to us through the promises of God? He says that through the promises of God, you may share in the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in this world. Saved that you might share in the divine nature or that you might become partakers of the divine nature. Isn't that... The gospel is not just about what we're saved from. It's about what we're saved for. And this is why I, I, I wish the gospel will, in its fullness would explode in our hearts and minds and that we'd move away from, from, from most often thinking about the gospel in terms of what I'm saved from. We'll talk about it in a moment to what I'm saved for. I'm saved to be transformed into the image and likeness of God. From time to time, we'll hear these stories of an individual who, after escaping or surviving a significant traumatic event, and I just thought in my own um, mind, um, you know, things like a mass shooting or an earthquake or a tsunami, you always hear these stories of a, a, a few who miraculously survive, uh, escape. And I've, I've often been... I have. I've thought about this. Some people, they just go back to their lives as though nothing has ever happened. Oh, boy, I missed the bullet on that one. Not in a literal sense, but you know what I mean. They just, oh, it wasn't my day. 
But then from time to time, you find an individual who is so profoundly impacted by their near miss that they go on to do just amazing things in their life. The gift of life changes everything about them. And I thought to myself, isn't that what should be the case of Christians? That we're profoundly impacted by what we've been saved from, but then we don't just trot off and go back to our lives as normal. But all of a sudden we realize what we're saved for. And, and the whole purpose and direction of our life changes and shifts. So Peter is not saying that you become part of God. That would be blasphemy. We don't become little gods, none of us. We don't become God. But what he's saying, I think, is that we are transformed or we're, partake, we're, we're, we're changed in to become partakers of the nature that God always intended for us. We look back and we see, well, that was Adam and Eve before they sinned. They were made in the image of God. They reflected the nature of God. And now as we look ahead, we are those that are going to one day be perfectly conformed to the image of God. We will be partakers of the divine nature. Our big brother, for instance, Christ, we will one day resemble him. For the Bible says we will be transformed into his likeness. In another place, it says that we have been predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his Son. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And this we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. And everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself. Do we get that? That when we see Jesus, we will become like him. And that transformative work is already taking place in us through the promises of Christ as we hold on to those truths, as we realize the gospel, as we come to know Christ and that work of transformation already begins to influence our life. And so we have this incredible help that not only in the present do we have everything that we need for life and godliness, but the promises of God direct us to and, and, and focus us on the future whereby which God is so working in us through Christ that we will one day fully be partakers of the divine nature. And then there's the promise of escape. Uh, he says in, at the end of verse 4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Other translations, and I think they're more correct. I, I went and looked at the Greek of this. And it says that you may become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruptions of the world, not having escaped. There's two benefits of the promises of God. We know the corruption of the world. You, you can go through a lot of the passages, and I don't want to go through them. I have them here, and I, I, I've written them out, but we don't have time other than to say to you, we know the influence of the world, don't we? And we know its pull on us, and... We know that the Word of God tells us that we're um, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, not squeezed into the mold of the world. How do we escape the crushing pressure of the world? How do we escape the allurement of the world to become a friend of the world? How do we escape its 
pressure that wants to squeeze us into its mold, to overrun us with its cares, to corrupt us with its pleasures, to pollute us with its wares. We do so by looking at the promises given to us by Christ. Let me just illustrate that. Abraham, for instance, was called out of the Ur of Chaldeas, and God promised him a, a land. And so he so believed in the promise that God had given him that, that that goal became his focus. And that focus did something with the way that he lived presently. For one, he, he never set down roots on earth. He was never called an earth dweller. He was always called a foreigner or an exile or a sojourner because he so realized that, that the present world that he lived in was not his home, but God had promised him a future home. It shaped his behavior. It shaped his thinking. It shaped his decision-making. He says there that, that he was looking forward to a city whose foundations and designer and builder was God. See, that's what the promises of God do to help us live a godly and holy life. They put our orientation down the road to what's coming. And that goal shapes our present. I think about Moses. I've often thought about this passage. Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he refused to embrace all the luxuries and the loves of Egypt. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why would he choose that? Why would anyone choose Christ over the world? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the tre treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was the reward? The reward was the promise of an eternal city and of Christ. We looked at this last week, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the other stuff that we need will be given to us. That changes our focus and our orientation in life. And Peter as much says this. Peter, in, in chapter 3, talks to the people who are wrestling with, with, with what's going on again, as I've already said. and He says to them, listen, there is coming a day when the world and the heavens will be destroyed by fire. It's not a guess. It's a certainty. It's a declaration of God. And so he says, in light of that, what kind of people ought you and I to be? He says, we ought to live holy and godly lives. You see how the promise of, of the judgment of God and even the promise of the return of Christ are to shape our present living. And so by the precious and great promises of Christ, we are enabled to escape the corruption that's in the world and to live lives that are godly before God. I just want to encourage us today. And I've been so thankful in my own, I love my study. I love the woods because I get to wrestle with these things first. And uh, I've been so thankful to be reminded again that not only did I start through grace, but that I continue with grace and I finish through grace. And the more I get to know Christ, 
the more I will realize the power and the preciousness of his promises that he gives to me to enable me to live the life that he has called me to live, a godly life before him. Oh, may God help us to grasp the beauty of Christ, the riches that are ours in Christ, the things that he has done for us to shape our living so that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Father, I thank you for your word today, again and again and again. I thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Father, would you, would you broaden the horizons of our thinking when it comes to the gospel? Would you help us to see where we tend to distort the gospel, creating a different gospel, if there is such a thing, because there isn't. Would you return us to the gospel of grace, through which all that we need for life and godliness has been provided. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.